Kia ora Fano. Welcome again to uh, the Department of Conversation. Our guest today is a comedian, seven days panellist, uh, writer, uh, all-around good guy, baseball fan, Jeremy Elwood. Known Jeremy for a very long time. Uh, it'll be a fun one today and you will enjoy what you have to hear. Not too much to tell you. Uh, some interesting podcasts coming up in the next couple of weeks, but we'll tell you the, about those shortly. But for now, um, enjoy Jeremy Elwood. Oh, nice. <clears throat> We're good. We're live. Great. Jeremy Elwood. Hello again. Good morning. Oh, gosh, again. This is strangely familiar. Hey, man. How are you? I'm good, Pat. How are you? I'm actually really, really, really good, and I'm really thankful for you to come in and say good day. You know what? I was thinking last night as I lay in bed, you and me go back to the just after the 90s. Because we started totally. at Theatre Sports Auckland. Yeah, right. We okay. had a transition right. over. Yep. You were yeah, coming yeah, yeah. in just as I was coming out to Theatre Sports Auckland. Like maybe only one or two games. Yeah, I didn't do much stuff with them, so yeah, yeah. it would have been a really brief I, period. I remember the, yeah, that'd be right. Yeah, yeah. and that'd that would have been to Auckland, 98, yeah. 99, 2000. Yep. That's yeah, nearly that 20 sense. years. Yeah, I know. Oh, don't say that. Holy mackerel. <laughs> so it's really lovely to have you back again. Yeah, nice. Thanks. And it's really nice to see you. Since I've moved to Dunedin, you've stayed in Auckland, we've been less in contact or yeah. less seeing each other, certainly. But your life's got really interesting of recent times. People probably mostly know you either for your stand-up comedy or for Seven Days. Yeah. That would be fair. That's, probably that's, mostly for Seven Days now. It's probably the most recognisable. I mean, that's the one thing. I mean, they'll, they'll probably know that. I mean, I was out in Dunedin last night, actually, and uh, there are a lot of people going, waving and pointing. Yeah. But the thing they yell is Seven Days. Right. They don't yell, stand up. So, now, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because you're already walking. Yeah, that's um, right. And so you're not. So obviously, uh, JC, Di, and Paul are kind of the captains. Yep. Uh, there's a, a layer of you guys. I'm thinking of Ursula, you and and some other guys who are kind of uh, f- you know, first fifteen, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't know how official that is, but yeah, if you watch the program, the, there's a whole bunch of us are, who are on more regularly than others. Yeah. Um, and that has changed over the years. Um, there's been a whole bunch of new young faces coming through this year, uh, mm. particularly young women. They've been really pushing to try and have. Um, at least one, but usually two relatively new women on the show every week. So that's kind of cut back a little bit on the the amount that I do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess you could say that me, Ben Hurley, Ursula, um, Josh Thompson. Yeah. There's a few. Yeah. Yep, yep. We were joking today that um, for people who have watched the podcast before, we're in a new location today. We're still filming at Petri Dish, but um, where we regularly film is busy yeah. today. Uh, Zach Galifianakis does Between Two Ferns. I did think that we don't quite have, You've only just got one. We don't quite have the budget for the between, so okay. this is this is like Department of Conversation beside one fern. Or the fern in between two ah. guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Um, so so also in the last 12 months or so, is it more than that? You Time flies. I moved here four years ago. Right. Um, you're now working with the project. Yeah, yeah. So I, I've actually been there since episode one. So it's coming up on, it'll be two years in, Jan, in January that wow. we've been on air. Yeah. Um, so I'm the head writer there. I'm obviously, you know, my main focus is on the comedy side, but um, it's a yeah, it's a real guerrilla TV show in many ways. Like you, everyone does a little bit of everything. Mm. Um, Daily Turnaround TV has been a whole whole different thing for me um so it's been it's been a lot of fun it's occasionally been really frightening it's occasionally been really weird how it's the first day job i've had in 25 years yeah um, how does it how's it how you how, i mean two years you must be liking it or else you'd be gone is oh it, yeah, is it yeah, yeah oh it's great yeah yeah it's a it's a wonderful team of people that they've put together 
Um, we get left to our own devices, uh, and and we're really proud of the show that we're putting out. Every That's night. so often the way with creatives, eh? Mm. I you hear conversations like The Simpsons is the perfect example. How have you been so successful? And they mm. say, uh, we don't take notes. Yeah, you know, meaning those up above leave us alone. It seems that for anything to be successful. Um, you know, the bureaucrats and the managers need to stay out of the way of the creatives. Yeah, well, that's certainly been my experience. I mean, I'm sure there has been a bit of that going on. Um, I mean, as with anything, it's a flagship show. It's 7 o'clock. It's primetime TV. So I'm sure there have been decisions made above my pay grade. Mm. Um, but in terms of what they allow me and my team of writers, um, and we are mainly working with whoever's in the comedian seat, whether that be Josh or Jeremy Corbett or mm. whoever is in that week, that day, um, yeah, we just do our thing. We have our own office. We're uh, separate from the main three building. We've, we're completely self-contained, so we've got our produ uh, produ uh, production, post-production, journalism, writing, studio are all in the same unit. Um, but, yeah, I agree with you. I think that that is often that too many cooks rule. Um, I think particularly when you're working with comedy, and I know the project is a weird hybrid, Yeah. Um, but there is such a big entertainment element of it. Uh, as soon as you start trying to throw bureaucracy at that um, it, it can it, it can run the risk of kill it so um, I've just been listening to a couple of podcasts in the last couple of days one just by chance they were on the same feed one with John Cleese and one with Eric Idle right and one of the stories that John Cleese tells is he went Went to start Monty Python like back in whatever it was, 69, actually yeah. for the BBC. He went to, they went to this meeting with this person who could make the decision. And the person who made the decision was like, So what's the show going to be? And he said, As a group of comedians, they looked at each other and went, What's the show going to be? Yeah. They didn't know. And he went, Well, is it going to have songs in it? And they looked at each other. This is in the meeting to get mm -hmm. green lighted. And he went, I don't know. They're talking to each other saying, Is it going to have songs in it? But the, the manager of the time who stayed the head of the department for the full four-year run of Monty Python um, knew they were good writers right. and knew they were good comedians. So the way John Cleese tells the story is he basically angrily said, oh, we'll just go away and make 13 episodes in. Yeah. You know, it's like, and, and, and the idea of someone who is good at checking numbers, good at managing people, can also control comedy, mm. seems to be an enigma. It's like, let them do what they want to do. You look after the budgets and stuff, but let them do what they want to do, and that's when you get gold. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a, certainly one way of doing it. The other way is, is finding someone who can put the team, the chemistry of the team together. Mm -hmm. I think that can be very important. Um, obviously, Monty Python, I mean, they were a team already, yeah. um, which is often the best way to do it. Yeah. Um, Seven Days is a perfect example of that. Um, it, Seven Days is not the first time New Zealand had tried a panel comedy show. Um, there'd been a at least two or three attempts that had just fallen flat. And and I personally believe that the, the biggest reason those shows didn't work was they just had the wrong group of people on screen and off. Um, you know, they tried to look at... <clears throat> And this happens so often in, in not just television, but any form of entertainment or the arts. They tried to have representatives of five different groups, if you like. You right. Know? So you mean uh, ticking the ticking the the female vote, the uh, Pacific Island vote, the Maori vote, absolutely, the, whatever it is. Yeah, whatever it is. Um, and I think, I mean, when when Seven Days started, they they didn't try to do that. Right. Um, I mean, I don't think they failed to do that, but it was just. Certainly, you know, from the first couple of episodes, it was like these are the seven people we think are going to be best on this show. Right. 
you know, and they tried a lot of people. They, they sort of auditioned, did loose runs, but they just didn't. There used to be like a Wednesday night at the comedy store in Auckland. There'd be like a, a mock one, and they'd sometimes find people from there and bring them that through. Was, that was slightly different, actually. Um, oh, sorry. I, yes, no. They they are still doing those. Yeah, we, oh, do, okay. we do one at six thirty, and it's a sort of smaller version. But yeah, we. But find, it's a we, testing. It's testing kind of round. a test out. Yeah. It's, so it's, any of those young new comedians, you still want to give them a try to see if it's going to work because they yeah. might be brilliant at stand up, but not, may not be able to pick up on those new. Yeah, events. and it's a, it's they're different genres um i mean doing i mean there are some brilliant stand-ups both from here and overseas mm-hmm. who have gone on seven days and really not come across very well because um, it's just not their thing yeah there are people who are brilliant on seven days who aren't necessarily the greatest stand-ups in the country right but you know they, they've, they've got a comic sensibility it's also that timing and being quick and yeah. i wonder as well uh, the relationship off camera. Mm. Like, I mean, I used to work in radio and often the best breakfast host, and I actually think about Jeremy Corbett, and he right. used to work with Kim on More FM. Yeah. Uh, always good mates. You always hear about the, those two kind of holidaying in the Coromandel. And yeah. back in the day, don't know how the relationship now is now, but like, uh, you know, uh, Roger and Nick on The Rock and these guys who are really good mates. Yeah made really good teams. How does that reflect on seven days? Absolutely. Um, Particularly, I mean, that core group of us that you mentioned at the beginning, who I guess you can call the originals. Mm. um, The OGs. We've We've all known each other for... 20 years as well right. um, and you know we, we may not go on holiday together but mm. we, we know each other we kind of have an idea of how each other's comedy works as well we have a respect for each other um, and yeah I mean we, we do a live tour which we're starting off again at the beginning of December and that's just that's great that's like you know hitting the road with a bunch of your friends for, for three four weeks it's a great way to finish the so year. is that a live seven days tour or live, or live seven days tour oh yeah, nice yeah, and you're going to come and do the students in Dunedin I guess December no, they're de- not going to be here December's hard for us in Dunedin we've done a couple in Dunedin and it's a, it's a tough set because yeah. because that big student market is is away. So the biggest shows we've done down here actually have been um, we did a, at least one maybe two orientation gigs. I remember you doing it at the Mitre Ten Stadium. Yeah, at the Forsyth Bar or Mitre Ten. Oh, sorry, Forsyth yeah, Bar. Yeah, but they were we certainly did it in the Mitre Ten stand. Um, yes, yes, yeah, and they were I mean they were great logistically a nightmare trying to do trying to do audio for seven people in a stadium is yeah. really tough. But they were you know they were packed. They were great fun. Nice. Has um, are you still guys filming the same way? Is a Thursday night takes about two and a half hours in yep. Ponsonby in Auckland. No, we've moved. Well, we've moved now. We're in a different studio, which was sort of, but not really, built for us. Yeah. Um, so we're down by the tennis centre in Parnell, if people know Auckland. Okay. Um, but yeah, same thing. We film. We have a live studio audience. Tickets are free. You just get them through the three website, and um, we just we just go for it. Because I would really, if people enjoy the show, I actually think the live show is a thousand times better. Yeah, well, it's a different beast, obviously. There's a different energy. Comedy is like that. I mean, just live comedy has always got an energy that that is very hard to translate to television. Yeah, Um, totally. I remember coming along, actually, with your parents one night um, a few years ago. And I think it was Madeline Sami was there. And, you know... Yeah, the the respectful people out there may not like this, but she was filthy. Like right, yeah. I remember some jokes about netballers and various things. Yeah, and it was just not netballers by name, but just the genre. It was it was so much funnier the stuff that came out that wasn't used, which yeah. obviously for reasons couldn't be used. Yeah. So if people like the show, they should totally get along to the live filming. Filming takes like two and a half hours. Yeah, we've it's it's tighter than back then. It used to be a marathon. Okay. <laughs> um, I think we have we have tightened it up a little bit. Um, yeah, and then they, I mean, they, they need that 24 hours to edit and, and run it past the lawyers. That's basically yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, cool. Now, speaking of your parents, mm-hmm. um, probably most people know your story. 
but you're not born in New Zealand? No, no, I was born in uh, Canada. I was yeah. born in there, lived lived in Canada till I was about seven years old. I moved to the UK. Uh, my dad's in medicine, so he basically followed medical schools around the world. Right. And then um, he was specialising in skin cancer and melanoma. So where Dunedin, else do you come? Exactly, than New yeah. Zealand. So we came to Otago. Yeah. Uh, and then I was in Dunedin for all my high school and university years. Um, went away again for a little bit and then eventually settled in Auckland around the time that we met, sort of 99, 2000. Oh, okay. So you were, you were down this way until then? Yeah, I was here for 11 years, I guess. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I was here. I, I, we arrived here in 89, and I think I left in 98. So. And your folks back in Canada now? No, they're back in Auckland, actually. They're, oh, really? Back there, yeah. Because you and Michelle were doing a fair few trips over there. I thought that was to see family. It was that? originally, yeah. So my like, same thing. My, my father went to Melbourne for a few years yeah. and then went to Vancouver, went back to UBC um, Medical School there for a, another five years, uh, and then got offered a job at um, University of Auckland. So I came back and... Um, yeah, he's kind of on the verge of retirement, but uh, don't tell him that. <laughs> <laughs> so he's so family's in Auckland. Yeah. Oh, very well. Cool. My parents are. Yeah. I've yeah. got one sister. She's in Melbourne still. Your um, how do you feel? I was going to say ethnically. It's always tough when you're talking to a white person about <laughs> ethnically. I don't know how it works, but you know, visual loyalties lie. I don't mean like, oh, you're an All Blacks fan, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, do you feel Canadian when you're in Canada? Do you feel like a Kiwi? Do you feel uh, outside the society when you go back? What I do. There is a touch of that. Um, I mean, when I do go back to Canada, it, it's still, even though I haven't lived there for a long time, yeah, it still feels very familiar. Right. Um, I mean, I still have a lot of family there. Yep. Um, I still know the cities that I tend to visit relatively well. They haven't changed that much. Places mm -hmm. don't. Um, but my home is in New Zealand. Uh, it's, interestingly enough, though, I do get um, I do get my back up a little bit. Um, like the, this, all this recent stuff about the Kiwi values yeah. that came out of the uh, New Zealand First Party Conference really got my back up. Because, Are we talking politics already? Well, no, I just thought I'd bring it up as an example. <laughs> okay. okay, let's go. Because uh, it was just that sense of... To me, that that's when people talk about things being Kiwi as, or yeah. that's so, or the traditional Kiwi, whatever. That's one. That's about the only time that I do feel slightly excluded. Um, Unpack that. I guess. All right, you talk about the the traditional, and, and people talk about like the traditional Kiwi beach summer or yep. Christmas at the beach, yep. and so on. And they talk about it as if everyone should know exactly what that means yep. and how it felt. And I, I don't. Um, you know, I have had beach summers as an adult, mm. but I never did as a child. Mm. Um, so is, that, yeah. is that because when you came here, you're in Dunedin as well, and Dunedin well, people yes. don't do beach summers? <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah. you're, yeah. There's a good reason for that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, and I think it, I mean, I, I suspect it's the same. Uh, you know, you see it very clearly over the ditch when, you know, people talk about Australian, you know, be if you don't like it, go home. That that statement is one, you know. Um, I wrote a newspaper column about this recently and I actually preempted that by saying, before you say, if you don't like it, go home, I do like it and I've chosen to be here. Yeah. Um, but Kiwi is broader than that or being a New Zealander or, or people, you know, and I think the more we... Um, I think the more we acknowledge that, the more cohesive we're going to be as, as a nation. Um, and I think that's, I mean, that is a reflection, and maybe, to be fair, my re reaction to it is possibly a reflection of the sort of rise of nationalism that you're seeing around the world, of people closing their borders, metaphorically or literally, mm. um, closing their heads into what they, you know, trying to throw back to a, an idea of country that, that um, I mean, as far as I'm Concern never existed. Maybe it did. Um, you were talking, maybe are we, are we talking about New Zealand now? Are we talking about Make America Great Again? Or is it all kind well, of. It's all part of the same well, thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I 
because I actually haven't been back to Canada for a few, for a few years, it's entirely possible the same thing's happening there. I don't know. Although Trudeau doesn't seem to be that way in Clark. Doesn't seem to be, but, you know, there are... Uh, the but same then look time, at Brazil. And look at... He, in the last look, few days. Look at us. You know, Jacinda Ardern doesn't seem that way inclined, but it's still... That sentiment is still there somewhere in, in, in the Well, country. I reckon, I mean, as you know, worked as a talkback host for several years. Yeah. <laughs> so I kind of saw quite a lot of that sentiment. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's uh, nothing new. Don't, don't make me think I it's I don't new. feel, and I have to be honest, I'm perhaps not as involved in politics as I with the New Zealand political scene. I feel like I'm far more involved in the American political scene. I, I love it. I'm with you on that. I don't so, feel yeah. quite as involved in the New Zealand political scene as perhaps I was. Mm. It doesn't feel to me like it's gotten worse, like that nationalism within New Zealand. And I remember, I'm see, I'm hearing you a story about what, you know, what's Kiwi as. And I, used, and I still will stand by this. The only thing we can claim to be Kiwi as, i.e. unique to New Zealand, yeah. is actually the Māori culture. Right. Because yeah. beach summers, mm-hmm. they happen in Australia. Yeah. Christmases yeah, yeah, yeah. on the beach, that happens in South Africa. Yeah. And in fact, most colonised countries, depending on what hemisphere you have, they actually mirror each other when it comes to things brought in by colonial yes, times. Absolutely. Yeah, Whereas yeah. the only thing unique to a country, I'm sorry, number eight wire, four by two mentality yeah. is in other parts of the world. Oh. Go, go, go to the outback of Australia is the Maori culture. I, so, so that's the only thing we have in this country yeah. that is, quote, Kiwi as, unique as. I completely agree with you. And it's funny. I mean, you, you, the people who talk about uh, a unique national culture um, – who talk about it in the way that I'm talking about it, in mm-hmm. the talkback radio way, tend to be white people. I know, when I say that to yeah. that person, they don't like it very much. No, exactly, yeah. But yeah. I, I firmly, and look, I don't say that to degrade those people's position and stuff, but I actually think, I'm just using logic. Mm. I've got cousins and family in Australia, guess what? They have a they beach the Christmas. Yeah. It's not unique to New Zealand. What's unique to New Zealand? Very little. Definitely the Māori culture. Yeah. That is unique to New Zealand. It's different from Samoa. It's different from Hawaii. It's different from, you know, Vanuatu. It's unique to this country. It's different from the Aboriginal culture in Australia. It is unique. It is the only thing. Well, I mean, I'm, I mean I there the might be one or two little things. There's the Cook Islands, which have a very, very similar. Sure, but it is still but different. I get you, yeah. So I always think when I hear people talk about, you know, the unique side of New Zealand and what's Kiwi as and what's is, is actually, that's why I always say mm. I am not Māori. I have no blood in me. But I, I, I own the story because I'm a part of the country. And yeah. if you're a part of the land and you don't own the Māori story, then actually you're not part of the country. Yeah. Because that's, no matter what you say then, now, and the future, that is the story of this country where it started, how it came through to a certain point and then started to change. But if you ignore that point, then... You know, you, what is it? You ignore history, you're doomed to repeat it. Yeah, it's So true, it's yeah. a part of us. And how much better do you think we're getting at that? Um, I don't feel like it's changed very much. Okay. I don't feel like... It's very different moving from um, Auckland to Dunedin. Yeah. The cultural makeup, the ethnic makeup is very different. Oh, absolutely. And it's yeah. quite. it was quite a shock when I moved here. Yeah. On some levels, I felt like I'd moved to a Scandinavian country. Oh, see, I, I, I know exactly what I mean because I did it the other way around. Right. Um, you know, I moved from Dunedin <laughs> to Auckland. And um, I think maybe I was a little more prepared because I initially, of course, came here as a tourist. Um, yet we came here as a, on sabbatical for six months before right. we moved here properly. Um, so I had done all the, you know, we'd been to Rotorua, we'd done the cultural experiences, you know. So at least I was aware of that. I do know people who born and bred in Dunedin who, um, you know, essentially had never met a, a, a 
Pacific Islander before. before right. they moved Growing up north. in Dunedin, we had uh, one Asian kid, and one Maori kid yeah. at my high school, and there was at a high, high school, school of seven hundred and fifty people. One yeah. Maori kid, uh, actually, sorry, two Asian kids, I think, and the rest were white. Yeah. Hey, look, be clear. There's nothing wrong with this. It's just you know population breakdown, population yeah. breakdown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but what I was going to say is um, when you said how how is it changing? I'm outside that sort of mm. massively. I mean, Dunedin is multicultural, no question. I mm. love it. I love the parts of this community that are. Um, ethnically diverse, but it is not as ethnically diverse as Auckland. So yeah. I'm outside a lot of that more intense bubble. Yeah. Um, and what I see in Dunedin is actually really nice, a really nice mix, welcoming, inviting. You know, you do get the odd argument, you don't call it, you know, that's not the Maori way that you pronounce it this way. But not a, a, I don't feel that very much down here. I felt that more in Auckland. Right. So my experience of coming to a place that seems less ethnically diverse kind of feels to me like it's more ethnically um, accepting, it's, yeah. it's interesting. Cohesive, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but I mean, you're still in Auckland. What do you what do you see up there? I mean, you're also part of the media yeah. every day. So, do you feel it? See it? Is there still that mate, for, for less for want of a less kind of um, I'm thinking like a, a not derogatory term, but a less argumentative term. Uh, the 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 racial diversity, the racial acceptance. How are you feeling that in the northern part of the country? I, I do think it's. It's certainly improved in my time up there. Um, I mean, there, it still exists, absolutely. Um, uh, we did a, uh, a, a few episodes uh, specifically for Māori Language Week, mm -hmm. um, and the feedback you get on that is completely predictable. You know, you right. get, um, God, can you just you know, pronounce places the right way, or, yeah. or I don't know, I don't want to watch TV when there's words I don't understand. But we're getting less and less of that. Um, possibly that's because of the specific show that I work on, right? You know, which of course is fronted by Kano Lloyd mm. and Josh Thompson is a regular guest. So mm. we are a pretty diverse face of of New Zealand right there, um, which sounds really patronising, but it's it's just a fact. Um, but it certainly still exists. I mean, you just have to look at Hobson's Pledge, and you know, you know, it's still there. The other, of course, the big tension in Auckland um, occasionally is uh, with with the Asian culture, with the the, the rapidly you know expanding Asian cultures, um, which I love. You know, I think that that really gives Auckland a, a, a truly Pan Asian feel, um, Pacific Asian, yeah, which, totally. which is what it is. That's that's the where we we are. You yeah. Know? Um, but you do, you you get that feedback. You know, you get people. I live in, a, in a, an area um, very close to me, which has the highest uh, Chinese population density in the country. Um, and you know, I do know older white people who just won't go there. Um, really? Yeah. Well, it's just, are you talking out East Auckland way? No, no, I'm talking over. It's North Shore actually. North oh, really? Coast, yeah. So if you'd have said that from my time, I would have said Pakuranga or Howick or. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's just in terms of of density. Right, of, okay, of, okay. You know, there's a there's a big shopping mall there, and it was fantastic during the Beijing Olympics. They put up this huge screen, nice. and they had it streaming 24 hours. You know. Um, but I do know people who who just go, oh yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go there. Like not go there as in like wouldn't walk the streets, or wouldn't no, no, no. wouldn't live there. Just wouldn't wouldn't would have no reason have no reason to believe that there's anything there for them. Right. I think. Yeah. Other no, than it's, the it's, amazing food and interesting culture. Correct. Yeah. That's, yeah. No, there's not a fear of it. Um, I should make that clear. Right. Um, but there's just that sense of oh that, no, that's theirs. That's theirs. That's theirs. That's not for me. Over here. Yeah. Exactly. That's one of those things I used to hear as a talkback host, which was you know not about any one particular. Um, culture, but often would be aimed at Asians. Mm. People would say, when you move here, we need to be one. We need to be one, be a part of society sort yeah. of thing. And my response to that would always be, so you want these people, you want to be with these people as one. And the person mm. would say, yes, and I'd say, well, go to them. Yeah. 
you know, when was the last time you invited them to your place for a barbecue? When was, like, it seems that we think this, I mean, you think about us moving to a, a really foreign culture, mm. I don't know, um, France, even though not really foreign in yeah, the way sure. we look, yeah. but but whatever, you know, the, the locals making us welcome is going to be a far easier way to mm. integrate into that society rather than us kind of standing there looking around going, how do I do this? Yeah. So my encouragement would always be to people, you put the hand out and pull them into the community rather than sitting back twiddling your thumbs going, yeah. when are you coming? When are you coming? And, and then one, when they come, they say, ah, oh, fuck off. And one thing we <clears throat> one thing we do do better than, than a lot of places I've visited is um, – our multiculturalism is, I'm speaking, I guess, specifically about Auckland at the moment, but it's very visible. Um, you know, totally. we, we, the, you, you walk down Queen Street, you walk through, uh, you know, a series of Korean shops, you hit the town hall, which is the old English architecture. Then you hit a whole sort of area with Italian restaurants. And, you know, it's not that defined. Um, in Melbourne, for example, it is that defined. You go to one suburb. There's, there's the Greek Italian, quarter. There's the there's, Greek yeah. quarter, yeah, <laughs> which is great. But interestingly, in terms of, to go back to, to Maori culture, um, when my parents lived in Australia, they said one of the problems that they immediately picked up on with the, um, the, the, the race issue with um, Aboriginal people over there is that you just basically never saw them. Mm. You know, you never walked into a shop or a bank or a meeting and sat across an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander as, as an equal. You know, you only really saw them in, you know, lying in parks or, you know, you saw the, because they, they still keep their, those cultures very separate. Right. Um, and thankfully we don't do that. I mean, partially because we just don't have the space. You know, we don't have a space to have, have two separate sort of cultures living apart. Yeah. Um, which is a good thing. But it, it also means that um, it can throw into sharp relief some of the, um, some of the ways that we're, we're failing that, that connection. Mm-hmm. Which is why, yeah, I was, I'm, I've been amazed recently with some of the, you know, resistance to the idea that Maori health needs more attention or the welfare state needs more targeted attention. You know, I, I don't know how you cannot see that um, because, like I say, it's, it's everywhere around us. I heard someone say the other day that it's – I think they were actually talking about Trump, but they said it's so fascinating when um, people who are born on third base – think they've hit a home run. Right. <clears throat> and I just thought about that kind yeah, of yeah. compared to what you were talking about. And I'm not saying that the that the the gap is anything like that, hmm. but there are a lot of people in this country who have been born at home base and have to go all the way around. Yep. And there are some of us that have been at first, second or third base yeah, yeah. And, and have advantages that others don't. And the ones that don't, sometimes they might need more coaching to hit that home run, whatever that coaching might end up being. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a, and I thank you for bringing in a baseball analogy. I was hoping we were going to get around to that. You got your Angels hat on? Got my Angels hat on, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And uh, I mean, you and I, I think, bonded quite a bit over a couple of election cycles on politics. Mm. Um, For those who don't know, we ran a podcast called The Slightly Correct Political Show. Yep. Which was freaking awesome. It was so much fun. Along with Chris Brain, if he's watching or listening. Yeah, and so that was season two, Chris Brain came in. So season one, we did a a series of guests and it was, it was the peas, wasn't it? Uh, No, performer, a pundit and a politician. And then season two, we just kind of had the three of us. There was you with a quote unquote left wing comedian. Chris was the right wing comedian. There was me supposedly in the middle. And then a guest, yeah. And then a guest of some sort. Um, I remember those days really fondly, and I still often think about a particular Don Brash interview we had. <laughs> I, thought, um, I thought this might come up. Well, well, it was. It, well, we've actually got a little moment. bit. Let's, yeah. let's play a smidge of this. He came in, and I don't think he quite knew what he put himself in for. Um, Interview. 
What you, Don Brash, is doing is basically a glorified version of lining up outside Pack and Save and oh, because he was, with a job application yeah, saying, we would like you people of New Zealand to employ me. That's exactly right. Would that be a fair, yep, would that, that be a fair comment? Let me play it to you first of all. Right? I won't play the whole thing because it's 60 seconds, but have a listen to this. This is from the 2005 um, campaign. Oh, poor Don Brash. Would you have sent troops to Iraq? I say this is a diversionary tactic by Helen Clark that's not relevant. But basic, would you have sent the, the would you basic, have sent troops the, to Iraq, Doctor Brash? The issue right now today is about Labor's wasting hundreds of millions of dollars of taxpayers' do, taxpayers' money. My question was: Would you have sent <laughs> troops to Iraq <laughs> if you were the prime minister? So and and that I'm, goes on for another forty-seven seconds. We don't need to go through the whole thing. I feel bad for him in that thing, and and to his credit. After that, he said. So the basic premise was: if you're applying for an interview, yeah, you know, if, if we're if you're interviewing to us for your job, we how can you be. come to a job interview and not answer the question? That's right. Yeah. To his credit, he said he was embarrassed by that. Obviously, some PR spin got sent wrong. And then I remember we asked him about his infidelity. Yeah, his marriage that came up as well. <laughs> so uh, it was it was a it was a. Well, I still think it's a valid question. You know, mm, people absolutely. say what happens, but you know, politicians' private lives is their own business. Fair enough on some level, unless their private life contravenes or contradicts their public life. Right. And I'm not saying that's the case with Don Brash, but the example we gave him was um, we talked about his. Um, it's been noted. It's publicised. It's not not gossip mongering. Yeah. And he admitted to some infidelity in some of his relationships. Mm. And so the question was, how can we, the public of New Zealand, trust you when at times the person who is closest to you can't trust you? In other words, are you going to cheat on us too? And again, to his credit, he went, well, that's a fair question and that's a question that the people of New Zealand have to answer. Yeah, and I think he did definitely answer the questions. And I think, I mean, if you look at what's been happening at the National Party over the last six months. Um, we're starting to see that again. I do wonder where the line is, and I, I occasionally wonder if we crossed it during that interview. Um, well, let's be fair. Occasionally you wonder if I crossed it, because I don't think true. you were involved in much of that questioning. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was me, mostly. Yeah, but, OK, it was uh, just for the legal minds watching. Um, because, you know, I do think uh, it's funny coming at... F- f- at it from a comedy point of view, yeah. I'm obviously looking for the stuff that I can make jokes about. Yeah. Um, and quite often the stuff I make jokes about is the other stuff is other things that make me annoyed. Right. Um, that's my way of turning, trying to turn my annoyance into something I can talk to an audience about mm-hmm. without just yelling at them. Um, and, and comedy's always worked like that. I mean, you go back to the court jester and, and totally medieval times. That's yep. the, he, he was the the court jester was the only person that could basically tell the king the truth yeah. without at risk of having his head cut it's off. It's where the term speak truth to power originates, yep. you know, is that. And so there's that. There are lines I do think when you hit where you just as a comedian, uh, I have to and I'm only speak for myself personally, I have to go, I oh, no, I can't go there. Um, so with that interview, on reflection, where do you think we maybe potentially mm. crossed a line? What do you reckon? I think potentially with the infidelity questions. Really? I think we, I think we maybe went a little long on it. Um, I mean, if people want to listen to the whole thing, you feel free to disagree. Somewhere with online, me. yeah. But like you say, I, I mean, I think I do also believe that if he he was relatively open to talking to us about it. I think the beauty, and I mean, uh, 
maybe it's similar to what we're doing here in the Department of Conversation. The beauty of it is I like and believe that asking questions that other people aren't asking can only be healthy. Mm. And I'm never basing anything from disrespect or, like someone said to me, a, a journalist friend actually said to me when I told them about this podcast, they went, oh, you're going to have to make sure you get the blood on the floor moment. That'll be the publicity. And I went, meh. And walked away and went, it's not what I want to do. No, no. Uh, we've got the Flat Earth Society coming in in two weeks' time. Great. And I want them to share the video on their Facebook page. In other words, I want them to be so happy with the interview mm. that we may agree, we may disagree, we may have point and counterpoint, but it's a fair, safe and healthy conversation, yeah. so much so that they're happy to put it on their page. That's sort of my my belief. Like we had an um, intersex conversation on Thursday right. that's gone through all the intersex communities' Facebook pages. Right. So that's sort of what I am about and what I want to do. Mm. I don't think also shying away from those questions. I mean, I, I, I take your point on that one. I'll reflect on that myself. Yeah. Um, I think but I think I still think that if someone's public life is is, is contradicted by their – let me use an example. And I, there's no one that I can think of, but someone – I mean, in American politics, you know, all the anti-gay hype from people who are sleeping with male prostitutes. But like on a more minor thing, someone who is like no to cannabis, mm. but maybe they're smoking in their own free time sort of thing. You know, I think those kinds of questions are valid. Oh, absolutely. Maybe yeah, that yeah. wasn't valid. Maybe mm. that's a line. Fair, fair, no, fair no, enough. No, I'm, not, I'm, I'm actually not, not agreeing – not disagreeing that it's valid. Uh, I just – yeah, I sometimes – maybe we just – Pushed it a little for a little too long. Was that the one that we talked about Rangatiratanga with him, or did I do that the, by myself? Uh, it's Doesn't well, ring a bell. It's a few years ago now. Because well, I, I think it, I think it, maybe it was. Because we yeah. talked to him about the Treaty of uh, Waitangi as well, That's right. yeah, we and I asked him about Kawanatanga Rangatiratanga, and he said to me, or said to us, if it was us, that he didn't know what those meant. Mm. And my position was, well, surely if you're going to be an advocate for a particular version of the treaty you should understand the other one as well and I remember noting that the next day he cancelled a debate right. on the treaty right. I don't know if that was because of the podcast but certainly being able to say if you don't understand what Kawanatanga is don't have to agree with it but if you don't even understand yeah. that's I think I think that's a flaw in someone's uh you know, especially when the United Nations says if there is a disagreement between two treaties, then you're supposed to go to the indigenous language to figure it out. Yeah, that's what that's what the rulings kind of are. So, even if you think it's wrong, you should at least understand. Oh, the, I, I, the yeah, thing. yeah, no, I completely agree on on, on not to pick on those not to pick on yeah. Don Brass because I remember some interesting conversations we had with people like Colin Craig as well. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> which we probably shouldn't go to. Oh, we're not going to go there. Quite happy to throw a lawyer at people. So uh, yeah, no, that, but that was fun and that was different and unique and. You know, there's some things about life moving on that you like and some things that you're a bit sad. And I yeah. guess I kind of go, it would have been nice to continue on with. Because we only ever did like 10, 15 weeks and it was only ever yeah, around right. the election yeah, cycle. Yeah, it was right, right up in the lead up to. Yeah, which yeah. means everyone came on because politicians go to the opening of a paper bag yeah. when it's election season. Yeah. So while some of them might be avoiding me now, I'm looking at you directly, um, in 18 months they'll be throwing themselves out. Oh, good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but you were known, and I guess that's why all the Uber drivers in Dunedin are thinking you're here for the Labour Party conference. You were known as a Labour Party activist almost. Is, are you still involved? Uh, no, I'm, no, I'm not. Um, I mean, I still, I have friends in the Labour Party who I will do favours for. You know, I'll, I'll do a fundraising show for them or be part of a debate or something. But I've, I've never actually, I've never been a member of the party. I've never right. been involved particularly behind the scenes. Um you know, I've 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 occasionally volunteered my services doing what I do, mm. which is you know, telling jokes. Yeah. Um, 
And I've done that for other parties as well, to be fair. Um, I've done it for, you know, um, the Greens once or twice um, and a few others. Um, um, because that's where you sit politically as well? Like if ACT came to you and wanted to use your services? Uh, no, I, I do sit on the left. Right. I think, I mean, I think that's pretty obvious in, in what the, the stuff that I choose to write and do comedy about. When you do stuff for political parties, is it typically you're volunteering your time to help? Or is it a paid gig? So what I'm thinking no, it's is, generally volunteer. So if ACT yeah. came to you and said, we'll pay you your fee to come and do it, would you be open to that or still not? Because probably of your, not. Okay. Yeah, probably not. Um, because, yeah, I mean, I do think you have to stay stay true. Um, what I have found is I have been far more removed from politics in recent years. Um, Why? I think I got frustrated with it. I, I, I think MMP frustrates me. Yeah. And I know that I'm flogging a dead horse here. <laughs> but I just, I find the... Uh, the horse trading that has to go on as mm. part of that system. Um, I mean, I, it, you know, as a, a source of of material, and you know, we've we've both met the man. He's he's, he's hugely charismatic. I, I really it, genuinely like Winston Peters. Didn't you meet him in a pub not too long ago, and he asked you what I was up to? That was uh, that was a couple of years ago, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's got a good mind on him, that man. Yeah. he remembers. But eh? watching that whole process again yeah, play yeah. out, just it just I just wanted to bang my head against the wall. And but um, what are the alternatives? Because I remember maybe not this election cycle, but the one before it. You know, I think Australia is STV, mm. and, and England is well, the UK is something else. They're yep. different, not MMP. And both of those had trade offs as well because it wasn't about the way people were elected. It was about that there was enough independence to make no one party have a majority. Yeah. Well, so, so, so so, the horse trading is not necessarily, I mean, it may be more likely in MMP, but it's not necessarily just MMP no, because no, other no, groups no. do it as well. So what's the solution? My, my personal choice would be single transferable. I right. mean, I think that's a... a I think that's a fairer system in in many ways, um, not only to to politics in general, but to the voter. Um, I mean, it's fa- it's it's amazing to me that if you if or the, I mean, <laughs> here's my option: you should be able to tick. This is the candidate and party I want in, mm-hmm. and this is the one I absolutely do not want in. Right? You know, this, I'm this is I'm joking, but yeah, this, yeah. this is the kind of thing that's in my head. Is so I, like a plus one, minus one, absolutely, almost, and everyone yeah. else is a zero. Because I think there's you know there's a vast number of people who look at the ACT Party, for example, and just go, "What? How is that there?" You know, and. Um, you know, because it's a deal. I'm just wondering the logistics of that. I know it's mm. not maybe serious, but wouldn't you it's just really get not. all the national parties saying plus one national, all of them saying minus one Labour, and maybe all the smaller parties that end up running the country? Well, maybe all the maybe, zeros. maybe that's how we're going to wind up. You know, maybe we should give that a go. See what happens. Um, I've uh, I've had this conversation before, and that that pot, that uh, method does exist. Oh, I really? don't know where it is. I'll look it up for you right now, but um, it does exist. Yeah. Oh. Damn it. Thought oh, I'd invented it. Oh well. And what do you think about the current government? I know you have friends and stuff in that department and yeah. in that party, but how do you think? Well, it's interesting. I thought this morning because I thought we might talk politics, and it's interesting that the right is often seen as a fiscally responsible, and the left is often seen as not. And there's just been a big surplus announced, mm. and my instant reaction was, "Of course, there's a surplus. It's Labor." <laughs> I mean, you think about Michael Cullen, surplus, yeah, surplus, yeah, surplus, exactly, surplus, yeah. surplus, and now it's Labor surplus. Now, yeah. now people will argue they've got a surplus because of national for them's responsibility. I'm not going to get into that, but how do you think, how do you feel about how Labor's going well, at the I'm moment? Well, you know, I, I, like I say, I haven't been quite as involved, so I'll, I'll take it away from specific policies and, and surplus and, and economics and just say what I think we've seen in the last, um, what is are we coming up on a year? It's been a year? Yeah. Yeah. Is we've seen a real, both parties have struggled 
with not being used to what they're doing now. Mm-hmm. You know, Labor have made some mistakes. Um, individual MPs have made some mistakes. Yeah, that's been prevalent. Both There's sides, both actually. sides. Yeah, yeah. and and so individual MPs have made mistakes. As a party, they've made mistakes. Um, and I think the underlying reason for a lot of that, but particularly the individual mistakes, is that these are people who have not been the ruling party for a decade. Right. Um, so they I, don't know what they're doing. Yeah, I looked it up and I, can't, I don't have the facts if you happen to pull them up, but there's, I, I believe there's three or four current MPs who have ever been in the ruling party before. Do you mean three or four in, uh, in Labour? In Labour. So if you look at, I mean, if you think about the, the clearing out that happens mm. during all those leadership battles, all of that, people, retirements, um, it might be three or four members of caucus rather than of uh, right. of, of cabinet, sorry, rather than of, of their whole party. But you look at that and you see they are just getting used. Claire Curran, um, seeing as we're in Dunedin, yeah. I think that was a perfect example of that. What she, those meetings that she had mm-hmm. as a, an opposition spokeswoman for the arts would not have been a problem. Um, meeting someone in a cafe, having a, a meeting in an office that you haven't totally 100% diuretized just wouldn't be a, a political issue. Yeah. But when you're the, when you're the minister, right. they are. Different, you know, different, different, different rules. Yeah. And I think we're seeing the, uh, the same thing happen on the other side, which is you're seeing a national party who aren't used to being in opposition. They're still coming across like, we can we can push through here, we're in charge. Well, I think they're actually coming across as, as believing that, um, I think they need to learn that uh, being in opposition is more than just opposing everything the government suggests. You know, it's, it's one of those things that, and I don't want to, I want to keep my powder a little bit dry, yeah, but sure. it's one of those things that I want to ask both leaders. Yeah, great. And I've had conversations with both Simon and Jacinda's mm. office and it's probably not going to happen this year. But one of the things I want to say is, and this is really based on an American system, right? And I heard a conversation with someone not too long ago, uh, and they were talking about Bill Maher, the comedian, and Bill Maher going, I want there to be a recession. Right. And he wants there to be a recession, so basically Trump falls and fails. Yeah. And there was some commentary on that from someone who was not a Trump supporter, saying we should want our president to be as successful, even if we hate him, we should want our president to be as successful as possible because that's good for all of us, I can make whether it, we're a supporter or not. I'd make it even you know wider than that. We we, sh- we should want our country to be doing the best that it can across the board, regardless of who's running it. Yeah, totally. I don't think I don't think who's running it should make such a big difference in certain areas as it does. Yeah. Um, and partic- I mean, the American system is is a very clear division. You know, there's a there's a very clear division, and I think. Um, I don't know what's going to happen with the midterms. I know you're going to be talking about it next yeah. week. Um, but people, you know, will often vote with their wallets. And like you say, the economy is actually doing pretty well. Um, so I don't know if there's going to be a big swing against Trump. What I am seeing in the lead up to it is a, a, a shift in both parties. You're seeing Republican candidates running for Congress who are at least – putting themselves across as more moderate than the well, guy who's sitting well, in the Medi- office. Medicaid is the perfect example. Yeah. Ted, Ted Cruz saying yes. pre-existing conditions, no one will be left behind. But just to finish off that point about Sorry, the leaders yeah. here, that's fine. Um, so what I want to do is say to Simon Bridges in particular, what are you doing to help Jacinda Ardern and the Labour Party make our yes. country great Absolutely. again? Because, yeah, yeah. you know, rather than just being in opposition, that's what actually I think- I, you, you, Simon Bridges, you, whoever else political party I've got here, you should want 
this person to be successful and this mm. party to be successful because if they're successful it's good for all of us you shouldn't just want them to fail so you can have a turn next and time and then and then please feel free to take the credit for it you yeah. know if 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 national came up with a policy that they presented that was wonderful for the country i mean yeah but that, that, sure but that's the that's, that's the equal and opposite that exactly, i want to say to jacinda yeah, exactly, which yeah. is and, and how often are you meeting with him and how mm -hmm. often is simon bringing in ideas that you're saying hey you know what your policy that's great we'll support it yeah both ways yeah and write down the ministerial ranks you know but to yeah. go back i mean just my point about the midterms yep. it was I, like i say i think we're going to see a shift in the republican party away from the really hard line right mm -hmm. that we have been seeing yep. um, and i think we're going to see more of a shift to the left from the Democrats. I think you're going to see more of the Bernie Sanders style of let's divest the wealth even more. It's time for America to sort out their political system. And that sounds really arrogant, saying that from the bottom of the world with someone, other than when they say, you know, when America sneezes, the world catches the cold. So we do have a vested interest, but not a lot really, compared to the people who live there. But the past 30 years, the right has won the popular vote once. Mm. Right, and yep. that was the second term of George W. Bush when the Iraq War was at its peak. Correct. And so that means for the past 30 years, America has been a left-wing country, hmm. but they've only run the country half the time. So they need to sort their system out and they need to figure it out because everyone talks about the polling being wrong at the last election. You know, the polling wasn't wrong because yeah. the polling was based on the popular vote. The polling said that Hillary Clinton would win the popular vote by about three points, and she That's did. That's what happened, yeah. So actually the polling wasn't wrong. People were interpreting it as... Uh, the col uh, collegiate, the college vote, yeah. and that's not. So actually the polling was wrong. And I think that we have lots of things we could do to improve our system. I actually think voting should be compulsory in this country. I think in New Zealand it should be compulsory, but equally on that voting paper there should be a no-confidence vote. Right. So you still must vote, but you have the option of picking not. I think voting should okay. be easier, yeah. it should be oh. online, it should be all these things as well. And I actually tell you that I believe that, and I'm not saying this from a person who supports the left necessarily, but I believe that if every citizen of every country voted, most of the Western countries would be left-wing countries. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Um, I guess maybe it's predictable that I would. Um, I, don't, <laughs> I don't necessarily agree with compulsory uh, anything, um, but I completely agree making voting easier, making it more accessible, making it... Um, uh, more attractive, um, and I think that's. I mean, I do think that's the problem. I, I think that the the lack of voter turnout anywhere in the world is not a. It's not laziness. It's not lazy millennials. It's not you know, people who just can't be bothered going down. It's a. It's a total dissatisfaction with certain systems. Well, I think it's just, both. It's that idea of. Well, what difference is it going to make? I think it's both. Mm. I think it's an element of laziness. I mean, I used to have this conversation, as again, I say uh, for the third time on Talkback, where people would say, oh, if you don't vote, you've got no right to have an opinion mm. now. And my response would be no, because an actual, an actual thought through, I can't vote for anyone, Right. So in other words, oh, I've as, worked as an it opinion. is as, as, as valid opinion, as valid a vote, opinion. which is why I say if you have a no confidence vote on there, yep. then you can have a thought through all these people are dicks, no confidence. And I, I hear what you're saying because actually, in general, I'm pretty anti the compulsory anything mm. as well. But I just think that, I mean, it's compulsory to vote in Australia. Yes. Um, it's compulsory to be registered to vote in New Zealand. I just think that if we want a fair, we always talk about fair representation. Mm. And if everyone voted, MMB wouldn't be a problem because it would be a fair representation, even if there was horse trading. Yeah. Okay. If there was a fair representation because everyone voted, who would have any complaints about the government? Yep. 
I, I would. Do you I know what I mean? That. Yeah. I mean, it might be unfair, it might be unrealistic, but I, I, you know, yeah. If I was going to change something, it would be that. Yeah. And perhaps the offside rule in rugby. That'd be the two things <laughs> if I was prime minister that I'd try and do. So what else have you got going on at the moment? Well, um, I've got a stand much stand up. Okay, so here's a question. Yeah, I, I, I do listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to a lot of comedians' podcasts, and a lot of them always talk about writing for sitcoms kills your stand up, right? Because you don't have time to do other things, and all your creativity goes into one thing. How are you going with stand up at the moment? Uh, I'm not doing as much of it, yeah. mainly just for time, yeah. um, and also uh, I, I, I was trying to do both for a while there. Um, do all of my regular work now daily work plus do all the gigs that I was normally doing yep. and it was just burning me out yeah, I, mean, yeah, I yeah. just wasn't having days or nights off at any point so I've pulled back on it a little bit for that reason um, I do get their point is I, I, I am writing jokes and lines and comedy all day um, so sometimes the trying to write but I'm writing them for other people's voices yeah sure for a different format for a different audience mm -hmm. for a different time slot than I normally perform at is that something you've had to learn writing uh, for someone else no not really um, I've always kind of been able to do that yeah um I've always been a very fast, and not just for comedy. You know, I was I was one of those kids who was I was terrible at internal assessment, but I nailed exams. You know, I could always just go in and go bang, 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 bang. That's that, and so that hasn't been an issue. It obviously helps that the voices I'm writing for are people I know. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, it's I, I I've never been employed to write for a comedian that I don't know personally. Right. Um, so, but yeah, no, it definitely makes it harder to then go home and write. 10 minutes of new material for yourself. So um, are you, so, you know, the International Comedy Festival is about March of next year, yeah. give or take. Are you going to, have you got enough time to fix something up for that? Or no, you I'm give not it doing, I won't be doing a show. What I am doing in February next year, uh, my wife, Michelle Lecourt, and I are doing a national tour mm. um, through Arts on Tour, mainly small towns, 27, I think, 27, 28. Actually, well, I was talking to Michelle not long ago over Facebook. Yeah. And she was like, well, if we come to Dunedin, are you coming to Dunedin? I, I need to check the itinerary right. to be honest with you. Because she actually said maybe me and Jeremy could both come in. Yeah, yeah, which would be um, a blast. We, it's this is all just coming into falling into place in the last week or so, really. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we will be doing a national tour. So I will definitely aim to have written a, a fair chunk of brand new stuff for that. Um, what I am at the moment, one thing that the writing does do is it makes those muscles those comedy muscles fire really quickly. So, um, I mean, I've always done a fair bit of ad-libbing on stage yep. and come out with a lot of my material starts as something I just come up with on stage. Yeah. So that bit of it still is actually working probably better than it has for a few years. Um, Do you know what I learned about you the other day, mm. having known you on and off around for 20 years? I look, actually, can you Google Jeremy Alwood? <laughs> no, Google Jeremy Alwood's song. Oh. I saw a song you performed at a comedy show, and I never, ever, ever not? seen you perform with a song before. Oh, that's, well, I don't uh, know if this will be the right one, but yeah, maybe it is. Let's hear a bit of no, this. I guess a lot of people haven't, actually, yeah. We won't get kicked. Who are we looking at here? No, we won't get kicked off YouTube for this, will we? Skip through a bit. Get into the guitar. <laughs> Let's have a bit of a song. Let's sweat to it. Yeah, there, there you go. go. There's a few of them. Ad news out there. There's so much conflict. I think the world... 
could use a love song. I'd never seen you do a song together. This is where I started. Doing that right? Yeah, absolutely. I you in front of the concords? No. See, I started well before them. Ah, so they suck. And no, 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 no. They're terrific. But there we go. We all need someone to hate. New Zealand's got Australia. Canada's got the states. The Scottish have the English. India's got Pakistan. I look a lot healthier in that video too. When is this? Afghanistan. 2012, I think. Well, no, Chinese sorry, I'm looking the at the views. But they're headed by Tibet. Yeah, so um, I hadn't I hadn't seen any of it before. No, well, when I started in out in Dunedin, yeah. uh, as you know, we um, the way the stand up it was it was sort of a circuitous cyclical route to getting right. to where I, I started. I, st- I was doing a lot of sketch comedy, and we yeah. were running a, a weekly sketch comedy show in the Octagon. Right, uh, and the sketches kind of just kept getting more and more elaborate. We kept adding in sets and props. So somebody <laughs> somebody had to go out and talk to the crowds. Um, so that's basically where I started doing traditional one guy with a microphone stand-up. Nice. But at the same time, um, I some of the sketches were musical and I took some of those and turned them into comedy songs. Um, it was also uh, when I started doing gigs outside of because those were very much within you know you'd know 80% of the audience student crowd very shortly when I started doing gigs outside of my then comfort zone in smaller towns in country pubs in some of the rougher pubs around Dunedin um, the guitar was a very useful thing to hide behind right and also a really useful thing to um I don't mean people were throwing stuff. No, I just mean, but also a, a safety way to, barrier, a way to cut through. Because yeah. back in those days, you know, a lot of places wouldn't put a cover charge on. Um, they wouldn't necessarily advertise the gig. I mean, there were times you would literally turn up at pubs and no one in the pub, apart from the owner, knew it was a comedy night. Right, they were all just there for their regular to get pissed. drinks, to get pissed, yeah. or to have a meal. Um, so the guitar was a really good thing for cutting through that. And then as things progressed, um, I I got a little tired of, of all that stuff. I got a bit tired of uh, of hiding behind things, and I wanted to challenge myself to do more stand up. So I started, you know, I would go from doing my initial sets were pretty much all songs, and then I would do two songs, and then I would do fifteen minutes of stand up and end with. A so you're song. basically the New Zealand's Billy Connolly. In a way, <laughs> but then the other thing that happened was um, there was a kind of boom in musical comedy, um, highlighted obviously by Flight of the Concords, mm. and um, suddenly it wasn't a point of difference for me anymore. So, right. so that's when I moved more into um, harder-edged, I suppose, topical and political comedy because that was a niche. And do you think that would be fair to say that's what you have been known for, let's say, the last 10 years, especially yeah, the think, political comedy? I would I would hope so. Yeah. Um, uh, topical maybe rather than specifically political. Because right. um, I think that, I mean, that was something I wanted to do and it was something, you know, it's the kind of comedy I've always admired watching, like right from when I when I first became aware of this. And who, who was that? So you're, what, 15 years old and who were you watching? What are you listening to? <sighs> I guess oh, when I was 15 it was probably, I mean, there was Tom Lehrer. My dad had a lot of Tom Lehrer's stuff, which again was where the music come from. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, when I really started getting into it, it was George Carlin, right. um, Pryor, Bill Hicks. It was mainly Americans, to be honest, rather than a lot of the Brits. Um, they came a bit later. But yeah, it's a, it, I mean, it's a funny... It's a funny performance. It's a weird job to do. Um, and particularly in New Zealand, I mean, it's not quite this way now. But when I started, there was such a limited number of opportunities, of, of, of gigs that you could do, mm-hmm. that you really, if you were trying to do it full time, you really needed to have a point of difference. Right. You know, because they didn't want to book three white guys with a microphone talking right. about politics. They, 
So you, if you look at that group of comedians who came out at that time, um, I mean, I, I toured for three years with um, Terry Frisbee, Chris Brain, and Reese Darby. Right. And you just look at the four of that, four of those. You had me doing, you know, borderline political stuff. Chris was a very, a very dark comic, you know, very cerebral. Terry was very much sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And Reese, I mean, insane. Reese is Reese. Yeah, it was insane. He was very much dinosaurs around the around yeah. the stage. Yeah, and that was the lineup show, and it and it did extremely well. Yeah. And um, you know, uh, it took us to it took us overseas. Um, but that was the kind of thing. I think these days you you do get a little bit more. Um, call it what you want, I, I occasionally call it monotony, throughout shows, you will get a lot. A lot of the young comics are very, I find, very similar. Right. Um, because they're seeing and imitating or just that's what's happening? I think it's just uh, that's what's happening right. at the moment. And and it's like anything. It's like music, you know. Certain things become popular. So when you see something that's successful, that's what you end up. Uh, no, maybe not imitating, but that's where you gravitate towards. Yeah, or, or it even just comes out from. I mean, comedy is a community, so you hang out with like-minded people, right. and um, and and you 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 tend to gravitate towards people who have similar ideas and attitudes to you. So that happens. You and your wife Michelle uh, do a lot of writing. I see quite a bit of uh, on stuff or various locations. Your articles, yeah. Come we, and sometimes you write together. We do write. To, yeah, we, so we write a um, a weekly two-header column for. Well, for stuff, it gets published in various newspapers, um, not the ODT, but um, Crossroads Press, Southland Times, Dominion Post. Uh, and, yeah, so we do that every week, and then it goes up on stuff when they remember to put it up, <laughs> which is <laughs> most of the time. when did you – I was going to say, because I have a very early recollection of Michelle. Um, when did you first meet Michelle? Oh, 90 – it was when I moved to Auckland, so I guess 97, 98, because um, I moved up in – was it 97? I can't remember the exact dates. Oh, but I was travelling up quite a lot, doing shows regularly, and we met around that time. And do most people know you about your how you got married and where you got married? <laughs> oh, it's not, not a secret. Yeah, yeah. We, so we got married, it's seven years ago now, in wow. uh, Vegas. Yeah. yeah. By Elvis? No, but in, in the little white <laughs> wedding chapel. The, the thing is, we only decided to do it on a Tuesday, and we did it on the Thursday. Um, and you need to book Elvis at least a week in advance. Right. So we did, we did actually ask, but uh, we couldn't get Elvis. My first memory of Michelle... Uh, is 1987. Right. And the reason I remember is she was hosting What Now? Mm. And it was the day of the final of the Rugby World Cup. <laughs> and I can remember specifically her wearing a French rugby jersey. Right, right. And the host going, oh, a court, of course, French. <laughs> and so they had uh, one of the hosts in the rugby, you know, All Blacks and one of the hosts and, yeah, and Michelle. Yeah. And, that, that and that's funny. that's my – that's. I mean, obviously I was – at the time I would have been watching it anyway. Mm. Um, I would have been 12, yeah. 13. But I specifically remember oh, the marrying funny. of the word A-Corp with the French jersey with the day of the – Oh, you should save all this out. for when you, you get her down. She'll, she'll come in and do this. Yeah, 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 no problem. So last question about that then. Um, if you're travelling together, who headlines? Who opens for who? We uh, – We'll pr probably literally toss a coin um, or just make a decision. It, it often, um, when you do a, a, a double headliner show, which is what these these are, yep. um, it often becomes really apparent very, like after two shows, which order works better. And yep. it's not a case of who's better than the other. Yep. It's just a case of what's the better flow for the audience. Oh, well, um, is there a natural kind of the way someone ends might be better to start into the other person yeah, sort of thing? Absolutely. And, and, and sometimes, you know, you, you might... Somebody might be ending with something 
that you want the audience to think about for 10 minutes over an interval. Yep. Or they might be something ending with something that you want them to be thinking about as they drive home. Cool. Um, so, yeah, but initially, I mean, for the first couple of shows, we will probably literally toss a coin. As most husbands, I thought you'd say, well, well whatever, Michelle. Yeah. <laughs> what are we going to do? Hey, um, I think we're probably approaching about yeah, midday. Yeah, I think we're getting around there. So, and, you know, you've got other stuff to do, other yeah. people to visit here in Dunedin. Yeah, I do. Down. Does this feel like home when you come here, seeing you were here for so long? Um, it's funny. I was having this conversation with a really good friend of mine last night. It, it's... No, not not really. Yeah. Um, but it still is very familiar. Right. It still feels very comfortable. You know this place. It feels to me, I don't know, but I suspect I feel about Dunedin a bit the way that's, that people who just came down and did an extended period at university, for right. example. Um, yeah, I mean, and the reason is that it doesn't necessarily feel like home. Is I mean, A, I've been away 20 years. Yeah. And B, my family don't live here anymore. Yep. Most of my good friends are living elsewhere. There's a small handful of hardcore who, who either um, stayed here or moved away and came back. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I still really like the place. I, I love the fact that Dunedin has retained its identity. Yeah. Um, I mean, it really does. It feels the same. This is what I mean. It feels familiar. It feels like it did when I when I lived here. Yeah. Um, but you know, my home is I is is with my uh, my wife and cat in Auckland, where I've been for you cat, know, two cat's decades. name is Satchmo. So if we were, if you're on Mark Maron's podcast right now, you'd now speak for twenty minutes about cats. Yeah, about but cats. Yeah, but yeah. We're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. So um, project is weeknights on three at seven. Yep, five nights a week, seven o'clock. Anything um, else that people need to know about for you coming up? Uh, keep an eye out for the tour. Um, those dates will be, and, and we really are covering a big, a, a large part of the country. And mm-hmm. it's it's a really fun tour because you're doing smaller places. You know, yep. we start in we start in Akaroa, um, and we end in Fakatane, I believe. You know, and so keep an eye out for that publicity for that'll be going out soon. Uh, the other thing <clears throat> that I will be involved in this summer is. Um, Auckland is getting its first ever professional baseball team. Oh, really? Um, yeah, the Auckland Tuatara play their first home game on November 22nd. Against who, if it's the first? Against the Brisbane Br- Brisbane. Bandits. Are they becoming a part of they're the Australian? They're part of the Australian League. Oh. So kind of like the Warriors um, yep. and the the Breakers, they're playing in the Australian competition. So Where we're, we're is, hoping they're more like the Breakers than the, than the <laughs> Where is the field going to be? It's eventually, this year it'll be a temporary um, uh, spot in Te Aratu, um, right. McLeod Park. Uh, but as of next year, they're moving to QBE Stadium in Albany. Um, right. So tickets have just gone on sale for that. It's AucklandTuatara.co.nz. So QBE Stadium is home of North Harbour Rugby. Oh, yes, I believe yeah, yeah. that. Yeah, it's well, it's it has been. Um, I'm not quite sure what the what the situation is. But summer, them, but a summer league baseball anyway. Yeah, yeah, we'll be moving in there, in um, and I'm going to be doing some ground announcing for them and roaming, roaming the uh, the stadium. And I'm just, I'm really, I'm a big baseball fan. For, if you hadn't noticed, um, so that's exciting for me. So Funny, uh, I've got New York on actually. Yeah, I know, I noticed that. Not um, because I'm a poser, not because I'm a fan. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so people want to find out about the Seven Days Tour, I guess, 3.co.nz, and your stuff, jeremyalwood.com? Yes, it is, yep. .com? Yep, jeremyalwood.com. I'm, I'm not great at updating my stuff, but it is there. Uh, Facebook, Jeremy Elwood. Twitter, Jeremy Elwood. I just, I don't hide behind aliases. All right. Um, yeah, Seven Days Live Tour is through, yeah, uh, 3.co.nz forward slash Seven Days Live, I cool. think, or just Google it. You'll find us. Excellent. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Pat. Nice to see you again. Well, there you go. Jeremy Elwood in the Department of Conversation. Coming up next week, uh, for you political fans out there, 
it is the American midterm election. So on Wednesday evening, probably either six or seven o'clock, keep an eye on the Facebook page for finer details. Uh, we're going to be live streaming and talking to uh, broadcaster Damien Yule, who's a bit of a political uh, dude, uh, but also Professor Robert Patman from the University of Otago. One of his areas of speciality is the American political system. A very big week in American politics. The midterm elections could change the whole makeup of how America is run for the next two years. So we will be having a chat about that and everything in general, as we normally do, uh, on Wednesday evening, uh, kicking off either six or seven o'clock. Facebook com forward slash DEPT of conversation department of conversation and then after that the next few weeks some more interesting guests coming up we're going to have in the New Zealand Flat Earth Society to talk about why the earth is flat and not round and uh, lots of other things on the way in the next few weeks as well so stay tuned check us out on Facebook check us out on Stitcher Spotify and iTunes as well for the audio podcasts and we'll see you in a few days with Professor Robert Patman. Hey, Ruth. <laughs>